It's like we had a discussion in class one day led by the TA and somebody brought up the Cosby show and the, the TA, the person who's responsible for marking me said, the Cosby show is not realistic. And when asked to clarify, she said, because it portrays um, professional black people. That was Alicia McIntyre. She's the undergraduate chair at Western's Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies Department, and she attended Western in the fall of 1988. In this interview, we discuss her experience at Western, police violence, anti-Black racism, and the state of the world now in 2020. My name is Kalita Al-Sadati, and this is Iconocast, the companion podcast to Iconoclast, Western University's Arts and Politics Collective. Okay, so Alicia, how are you? I'm doing really well. Like, it's been obviously a very traumatic um, summer. Mm-hmm. And a very emotionally draining summer. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, like, there's a sense of relief. Mm-hmm. And I can say, you know, if, if there is one thing that I would say to white allies, um, collectively, from the people that I've spoke, from the Black people that I've spoken to, it's like, please stop asking us how we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. Yeah. I think there is like an assumption there like, oh my God, like this time is so traumatic. How are you guys doing? Mm -hmm. And that does not recognize the fact that this is not new. Police brutality is not new. Mm -hmm. What's new is police brutality being filmed every other day. Absolutely. And I think you touched on something really, really um, true, which is that these anti-black racism has always existed it's now only beginning to become evident and i think that you can really speak true to that right because you've again you've worked at the university you said 16 years yeah and i grew up in toronto like mm -hmm. i grew up in toronto during a time of like a lot of police brutality Mm -hmm. um a lot of protests a lot of riots and it seems very reminiscent of what's happening today oh um but it was happening in toronto and i I have had a few people say to me like thank god you live in canada and those things don't happen in canada Mm -hmm. and so that's not my experience at all no absolutely not and i think that's something that has become to the forefront especially like within universities. Um, I think that we have seen at Western within, just within the last year, right? Um, anti-Black racism is incredibly still mm-hmm. present. You know, we're, st- we're taking steps towards changing it, but, you know, it's, there's only so much we can do without really addressing that history of racism. Right, and addressing it from the institutional level. Absolutely. And not just the one-on-one. And when did you attend Western in your undergrad? Um, so I was, I had just turned 17 when I started my undergrad. I'm Aww. just going to do some math. So 1988, it was very lonely. It was very lonely for a little while until I joined um, the CSO, the Caribbean Student uh, Association or the 
Is that the CSO now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I started making friends and I started making friends in class and then things got a lot better. Oh, that's lovely. And what was your experience as like, like a, you know, a bi POC undergrad at Western during that time? Because I imagine it was much different or maybe not so much different as it is now. Yeah, it's interesting coming from Toronto. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I think there was racism in Toronto, but it was Mm -hmm. very like an undertone of racism. Mm -hmm. Um, And just coming to Western, uh, London as a whole, like uh, myself and the other Black students, we felt like hostility when we went out into London. People would glaring at us. People would yell things at us. Um, so we, when we talked about it, we had decided we're not going off campus alone. Like that's how unsafe we felt. So we would always go off campus in groups. That is terrifying. What's like the second term we were like, we're not going off campus. (laughs) Well, that I can't, I imagine like that seriously impacts your ability to enjoy your undergrad experience when you are afraid to go into the community that your school is in that is supposed to be embracing you and is supposed to be this university that is supposed you're supposed to be celebrated in um and you're you're scared you're terrified yeah we were like not we did not feel safe we did not feel comfortable as a matter of fact um i met a student she's a good friend of mine today and she actually was from london she lived in london and i just was shocked i'm like so there are black people here (laughs) Like, how do you manage? Yeah. (laughs) Because the way that people would stare at us, I assumed that they had never seen a Black person before. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. people would follow us around stores. Um, So, yeah, that that was different for me, for sure. Absolutely. And, And, I mean, in terms of my experience at Western, I really enjoyed most of my classes at Western. Mm -hmm. I had issue with one of my classes and that was like my first year psychology class. Was that the Philip taught by Philip Rushton? No, it wasn't. Okay. But it's just interesting um, because our psychology textbook started off by comparing, let's say, um, poor inner city black students and their test scores and performance scores, their intelligence scores with white suburban middle-class students, right? So they did those comparisons for about the first 10 pages. Thereafter, they stopped distinguishing <laughs> that they were talking about poor inner city black students and white middle-class um, students and started using poor and middle class and everybody sort of, so they trained you to associate the poor with the black students and the middle class with the white students. Oh my gosh. And I was thinking, what about middle class black students or poor white students? Like there was no mention of that. It was so, basically, these realities didn't exist outside yeah, of- so they're training presented. people in an educational setting to, and they're like reinforcing stereotypes that all black people are poor and all white people are middle class. 
that was my textbook. That was my first year experience. And even as a first year, I was like, this is nonsense. Oh my God. And then that translated into this, the discussions in class. Like we had a discussion in class one day led by the TA and somebody brought up the Cosby show and the, the TA, the person who's responsible for marking me said, the Cosby show is not realistic. And when asked to clarify, she said, because it portrays um, professional Black people. She said that right out. <laughs> and I challenged that. I said, my, my parents are professionals. My aunts and uncles are professionals. So that is my reality. Like the Cosby show is my reality. And she said, and I quote, you are the exception rather than the rule. Were you like at Western during that, that during that period where he was like debating David Suzuki and like where there was that kind of like media circus yeah. surrounding him? I was and, literally like, at Western. That was my first year. Oh my God. Um, and I can tell you that was incredibly traumatic. We were dazed. We were confused. We were hurt. We were angry. All of us. <laughs> John Philip Rushton was a professor at Western University there in the 1980s and 90s, and his research mainly pertained to race and intelligence. His most prominent idea was that racial differences in IQ are partially related to genetic inheritance. Um, essentially, people that were not white, generally black people, had smaller brains and were therefore sexually aggressive and less intelligent. We were dazed, we were confused, we were hurt, we were angry, all of us. <laughs> I can say that about every single black person on campus. We all kind of just walked around in a daze. Mm -hmm. And what we were waiting for at that time, honestly, was a really strong institutional response to that like a really strong, this guy does not represent our values. Um, like a really strong censorship of Rushton and uh, I don't think it ever came. Mm -hmm. So that to, to us was like insult to injury. Mm -hmm. We wanted to see like scientists come out of the woodwork and say, your methodology is wrong. Mm -hmm. Like your science is wrong. Mm -hmm. We understand as black people, what you're saying is complete nonsense, mm -hmm. but I want somebody to go through your methodology and pick out the faults. <laughs> like I felt like that was the only way to discredit him mm -hmm. because he was being lauded as a social scientist and a pretty pro uh, prominent social scientists mm -hmm. and we wanted him to be taken off that pedestal mm -hmm. we everyone knew this man was taking money from white supremacist group mm -hmm. you know what i mean and that he was part of a white supremacist nazi organization so how do you let someone like that practice quote-unquote science and how do you let someone like that teach at a university and then claim to respect diversity. Mm -hmm. How, as a black student, am I supposed to sit in your class when you think I'm dumber than everybody else? Mm 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's insane in a lot of ways, in, in many ways. And the fact that he stayed until he stayed until he died. died. He was yeah. never fired. He was yeah. never let go. He basically died. Okay, so fast forward to 2020. Mm-hmm. when Alan Shepard apologizes mm-hmm. and there's an immediate backlash. I know for myself, I'm not going to speak for anyone else, but I think for myself, like I left Western after that happened, mm-hmm. you know, that happening in addition to the hostile environment of London, I'm like, this is not the place for me. So I left Western. I know a lot of people who left Western because of this. Mm -hmm. but we did not deal with our emotions Mm -hmm. we didn't deal with it we just kind of buried it and moved on when he apologized this summer it brought up a lot of emotions Mm -hmm. it literally brought me back to 17 year old me walking around campus afraid and angry and hurt Mm -hmm. it brought that it brought me right back to that moment And I think it brought a lot of other alumni back to that place Mm -hmm. where we did not receive the support that we needed from Western. Mm -hmm. The damage has been done. Yeah, the damage was done. The damage continued to be done. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so the apology just seemed like a little, like too little, too late. Mm -hmm. The apology, I feel like, did not acknowledge the harm that was done. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And... Like, were there Black students on campus speaking out against Rushton? Was, were, were they able to, you know, safely uh, protected by anyone? I feel like what we were doing was speaking out within our groups. So the, the African Students Association. Was anyone at all, not even just Black students, was anyone doing it outside of, you know, data, the Suzuki? <laughs> yeah. I feel like as Black students, we felt very alone. Mm -hmm. We felt very alone. We're like, no one else understands our pain. We would basically collect in rooms and vent together. Mm -hmm. There was no administrative support. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It was us comforting each other Mm -hmm. and like ranting amongst ourselves. It's kind of incredible how despite everything that was going on you guys were still able to like build and find this community and family um and people to protect you and save you and help you during this time like that's definitely one thing i'm super grateful for was that our associations we were so close (laughs) (laughs) um and we definitely supported each other because there was no one else to support us and I, you know, I could probably say that's one thing that has changed mm-hmm. um, because when that student was attacked, I feel like she did get support from the administration, mm-hmm. you know, and the administration was immediately there, like, what can we do to help? Mm-hmm. I don't feel like that happened for us. No, no. Do you, and I think that probably social media has a lot to do with it, mm-hmm. um, you know, kind of the ability to, to to show what was happening and its impact and like the ability to organize on campus is really, really, I think 
made it so it was impossible to ignore by the administration. Yes. I was super proud of how like black students came together to support that one student. Um, and how immediately, almost immediately, before anyone else had anything to say, how the BSA and ASA came out with statements of support, like almost immediately. Mm -hmm. That um, was really awesome. Good job, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, look at them go. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I, I think that bsa fundamentally it's like a it's it's a political it's a political club it's a political organization and they're here to represent the interests of black students on campus and they absolutely did that but i think that a lot has changed so that they're able to like i don't think that that would have been possible you know even 10 years ago um but i think that now as a now coming as a as an adult and you know you were an adult then but now as an adult in 2020 what would you say to like 17 year old you at that time wow wow <laughs> you know i still feel like that 17 year old sometimes when things happen you know i don't know what to say to her because i wish i could say to her hang in there things will get better mm -hmm. You know, but it's tragic that I can't say that to her, not only to her, but to my 19-year-old daughter, mm -hmm. to my 13-year-old daughter. Mm -hmm. I still have to give them the same sorts of talks that my parents gave me. Mm -hmm. um, I grew up in Toronto at a time when I feel like, when, you know, nightly news, every three days, they were looking for a Black suspect and they would cast such a wide net. Mm -hmm. <laughs> The description of this black suspect basically encompassed everyone I knew. <laughs> it's like black men, five two to six five, the teenagers of complexion, sixteen to sixty years old. And this is during carding. Was it during the carding? Was this like during when carding was? No, like? this is like just everyday life. <laughs> Wow. Like people made parodies about this, but it was like, wow, this literally sounds like F from my brother to my dad. <laughs> and it just created an environment in which I did not feel safe leaving the house because wow. it was like when they're looking for a suspect and that suspect happens to be a black female, I could easily be grabbed off the street as a suspect. Okay. So it created this culture for me where I would like, I was very shy and very quiet, but I would like, t if I went into a store, mm -hmm. I would talk to the clerk so that they would remember me. I saved all of my receipts all the time so I could have a timestamp of where I was at what particular time. I would not go anywhere unless I told somebody where I was going. Oh my gosh. Do you know what I mean? And like, it's so funny to me that I have to like pass that sort of anxiety down to especially my son mm -hmm. um, I was scared for him to get a car I was terrified for him to get a car the first day he got his car he came to take us out for dinner on the way home um, there was a police cruiser in the back and I said to him Jordan, you have to switch lanes, but can you wait until the police car 
passes and then switch lanes behind him. He's like, no, I'm not doing anything wrong. So he switches lanes in front of the police car. Police car pulls him over. And we're sitting in the car. And here's my worst nightmare. First day he got the car. (laughs) You know what? Fine, it was a great stop. The officer was friendly. But, like, I literally couldn't sleep for two weeks thinking, what happens when we're not there? What happens when I'm not there to tell him what to say? Or the officer's not friendly. So I you know, tell him, identify yourself as a college student, make sure you keep your hands on the wheels, no sudden movements, all those, those kinds of things. It's so, so sad that it's, it's like, it really just reduces your quality of life to be having to be scared all the time of, you know, state violence for just existing as a Black person and being scared for your children. I think that I, 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 you know, it is really sad. It is very depressing. And I, I think that's something that a lot of people kind of came to a head this summer. I feel like a lot of Black people I knew were struggling with their mental health just because of everything that was going on on social yeah. media. Like, it, it was just constant bombardment, right? It was constant. And then you feel bad for turning it off because you want to support support the the cause. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know what I mean? Like people who are suffering through this can't just turn their phone off. Yeah, yeah. You feel bad for like wanting a break, but it's like, especially with the algorithms, mm-hmm. once you click on one video, it's just a constant stream of police brutality. <laughs> and I think something that gets lost in a lot of what is happening right now is like how do we like like yes okay it's important to bring awareness to things and educate yourself but how do we not re-traumatize our black friends and mm-hmm. co-workers um how do we um you know actually make change without further just like like hurting people you know right. Yeah. And I see, you know, I see the two sides to it. It's obviously, it's not something that we can ignore. But I think at this point, we all know it's going on and it's going on every day. So yeah, I think it is time to stop re-traumatizing with the videos, the images. You know, I think about how that affects the psyche of my children. Oh, to constantly see people who look like them gunned down or mistreated or beat up mm-hmm. or like treated in an inhumane way then as a parent it's just a harder job for me to send them out into the world you know as kings and queens with their head held high understanding what a great history they have and how far we have come as a people and how intelligent they are and how beautiful they are and how worthy they are, mm-hmm. right? Like, I feel like I'm constantly fighting an opposite message. Mm-hmm. I want them to know what's happening. I want them to know about the dangers, but I don't want to bombard them. Mm-hmm. So that's definitely something that I struggle with as a parent. And I don't want to bombard myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. Because it's, you know, a lot to take on you know, just for yourself, you know, protecting, constantly protecting others. Like, what do you think that these kind of experiences as like a former Western student have 
Um, do you think that it's allowed you to approach your work and your relationships with your students differently, perhaps? I mean, absolutely. I feel like in my role, one of the number one things I try to do is be an advocate for students. Mm -hmm. And I definitely try to advocate more for my students of color. <laughs> I, know, yeah. I know you guys need additional support. Mm -hmm. Not just this year when things are coming to a fore, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That goes back to what I said before. Like, I know that you guys live, that is your lived experience, that trauma. Um, it, is it more traumatic now because it's just like out there all the time? Yes, but it's always traumatic. I always feel like you guys need extra support. Mm -hmm. So that's how I approach my job. Absolutely. And in your view, what is like adequately addressing and dismantling anti-Black racism on campus look like? I think about all the instances of students reporting acts of racism to me in the classroom, on campus, with other students, with professors, with staff. And I think about the fact that there was not a way that I could tell them that they could address it. There was not like a body that I could send them to that I was confident would address it. And I know the um, anti-racism working group has addressed this, but I really strongly feel there needs to be like a separate body that is not connected to Western, mm -hmm. <laughs> like an ombudsman that people could go and launch their complaint. And this body needs to have some teeth. They need to be able to sanction people. They need to be able to sit down with someone and say, hey, it was hurtful for you to use the N-word in your class. Mm -hmm. This is the reason why. Please don't do it again. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think another thing is like, like accommodations, right? Like we are in a global pandemic. And we're in this time where we're like, okay, we need to address anti-black racism. We need to, address. but um, we are also like not reducing tuition costs. Right. We are not um, adequately like addressing the fact that, you know, like not everyone comes from the same socioeconomic background. Not everyone can can you know attend a Zoom lecture with their camera on. Might not have internet access even um might not be able to learn in their home environments right and what are we doing to like you know addressing institutional anti-black racism does not mean just accounting for racist institutions it means making a space where black students can be able to participate yeah participate in, in accessible I bring that point up all the time when I, when I hear people talk about, you know, well, they can just get on Zoom, like, but not everyone has stable internet connections. I consider myself fortunate and my internet connection sometimes still isn't stable. Mm -hmm. um, you know, my daughter was just doing a test and like the internet for some reason just died in the middle of her exam. Oh gosh. Um, not everyone has a quiet environment to study and take a test from. Not everybody has, you know, there's kind of an assumption of privilege um, with online learning that you have an environment in which you can learn. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that is simply not the truth. Mm -hmm. And what, what I think, I mean, I know it's a new situation and we are 
adapting every day and we are trying to help everyone. But what the sense I'm getting is we're going to take everybody's needs individually mm-hmm. as opposed to being a, a more institutional approach to accommodating everyone. And I think a, a huge takeaway and something that is becoming more evident um not much has really changed since you know the time that you were at western um (laughs) you know in a lot of ways um students of color are still having to do a lot of the legwork to be able to be seen and heard and have their issues addressed um at the institutional level uh because otherwise there there is there is nothing that can be done and i know at the you kind of at the beginning kind of gave your message to white allies but i but what is something that you uh, anything else is there anything else you'd want to bring forward um in terms of what is what can they do outside of not bothering us and asking us if we're okay <laughs> all the time oh my god the other thing i would say is please speak up there, you know, the majority of students who have come to me and complained about uh, professors saying the N-word in class have been white students. And they didn't say anything. And like, as a black student sitting in class and hearing that word, you're already traumatized. I give so much credit to that student for speaking up. Because mm-hmm. I feel like I would have gone away like so (laughs) like shocked and traumatized and maybe like two days later been able to address it. She addressed it right then and there. So that's so amazing for her. Um, But as a, as a, a white ally, you can say something you can, you can say, Hey, I don't think that's okay. Mm -hmm. Like speak up when you see these things happening, when you see, black people and other people of color being treated unjustly and you know in your heart that they are being treated unjustly you know in your heart that if they were white they would not be treated that way mm-hmm. how about if you say something before we end off today i'd like to thank alicia for coming on today and sharing her story with us as well as you guys for listening Make sure to follow us at Iconoclast Collective UWO on Facebook and Iconoclast UWO on Instagram. Have a wonderful day.